Thank you. 
Greeks, especially the Gulf nation, to exercise their own element of military power. We started with the kingdom back in May 2011, April 2014, with the uh, major uh, parade after the major exercise Saif Abdullah or Sora Abdullah. It was uh, for the first time they, uh, they, uh, they displayed one of their Chinese ballistic missiles, the F 3. That's what they did for the first time, and then since they acquired some Australian missiles sometime in the mid 80s. And that was uh, basically a show of force, and that was also designed to show that, that there is an element of power that the Gulf countries may, may, may utilize if they want to. That was for two things: one for domestic consumption to show that the local leadership that they can the military is ready, and then the other one is for is regional uh, regional uh, consumption as well. Um, so that, that that initial thing for the exercise, followed by uh, when we asked the uh, nations to participate in the ISIS campaign, which already was the first country they joined, and they and the rest of the PCC joined them. That was initial started of using element of power, and that followed by the next following year, March 2015, when the Saudi formed the only the coalition outside Western powers, or the together and invaded the went out to Yemen. And even though right now the military operations are stalemate, however, initially the campaign accomplished its mission by stopping the Houthis from some time to go into the political process. Unfortunately, the political process is still going on and we have a resolution. The other, thing, the other success for this coalition was to secure a U.S. resolution by the six years. So that was another success. So there was a military success initially, but also there was a political success. Small success. I'll end up with this. I'm not going to give you any recommendation, but perhaps an observation. So the U.S. defense strategy is, uh, I think, is uh, is not limiting uh, any tension away from the uh, from the Middle East, but the uh, the cost of deteriorating defense cooperation with the Middle East is clear. Failure to meet, <coughs> uh, failure, failure to meet the mutual defense objectives will result in uh, decreasing U.S. regional influence in the world. Into the defense side and then the combating extremism uh, and the 
that uh, President Roosevelt's uh, visit on USS Quincy, which is Royal Highness King Abdul Aziz, in 1945, and it's over seven decades long. And the uh, defense, not just of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but of the territorial integrity of all of the Arab nations, is of vital importance to the United States. I think it's a symbiotic relationship. Not only does the United States get a, a stable Middle East or a stable as can be in a, a tough neighborhood, uh, but also it, it gets the, the prosperity uh, and economic stability uh, that is required for the oil to go to flow. Uh, and it's been built on that over the last six, seven decades. And I sincerely hope that it continues at least for the next seven decades as well. Picking up what the Colonel just said about, uh, you know, two ways you can acquire defense capability. It's either through foreign military sale or direct commercial sale. It might sound paradoxical, but as someone that works in the U.S. defense industry, I would advocate foreign military sale every time. Uh, the reason I would say this, it's not just about the equipment element that you're getting. But if you do it through foreign military sale, you have the U.S. government working your concept of operations. You have the U.S. government and the military services helping develop the training. Uh, and it's, it's the education and training and use of that capability, not just for your own use, but when you're using it in a coalition environment. If you understand how people operate, the tactics, training, and procedures that they have, and you have equipment that is interoperable because it's built on the same communication standards. It has the same cryptographic basis for it. You can actually achieve a coalition of interoperability, and that's really important. Some people ask me, if you go down foreign military sales, and you know, uh, America first and jobs for America, is that not against Vision 2030? in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and I would say not at all, uh, because to deliver effectively, you need those local partnerships. My company has been in the Kingdom for uh, well over 40 years. In fact, uh, first cup of coffee this morning, I, I met a gentleman and said, what are you doing here? He said, well, I've got a great interest. Uh, I was involved in 1973, I was involved in training the uh, F5 program in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And he said it was very effective. We had a lot of knowledge transfer. We've got 1,800 nationals working in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There's only 600 U.S. nationals, and there are 1,200 Saudi nationals. We are developing and delivering Vision 2030 in 2018. Again, put forward a comp 
to counter that extremism. It's being done by very nations. I know that the, the UK government uh, just in July of this year set up a commission to look at how we can counter extremism and reduce the radicalization of our population. Uh, again, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has served and made some great strides in that area, and also the United Arab Emirates with their, uh, their counter terrorism center that they've recently set up in coordination with the U.S. And again, I would say it's far better to cooperate and coordinate uh, our activities on countering extremism. Uh, and again, I'm going to steal from uh, Dr. Anthony. Uh, he spoke eloquently last night at the reception of the one-word answer to all of this, and it's education. And I think it's desperately important that we get that education across to the youth. The demographics of the Middle East is a, a very dynamic population. It's a very young population, you know, somewhere approaching 70% of the population are below the age of 30. Education is the key to countering this extremism. Uh, and I don't think there's anyone in the room that listened to the five interns talked about their experiences uh, through this program uh, that won't have been moved to think that is a force for good uh, and I think that should be looked at and the, uh, the linkage between defense and countering experience, uh, extremism is very very close and again I would say do it bilaterally and do it multilaterally do it with the US government because in the end it comes down to trust comes down to partnership. And if I'm one of the Arab nations and I feel that my territorial integrity is being challenged, I know that one country I can trust, and that's the United States.
And that 
to the missiles. If you really get into a very difficult, tense time, and surely that's happened, you want to know the person across the table. You want to know them well. You want to have met their families, had golf coffee with them. He's one of my favorite drinks, by the way. And also talk about Islamic history and the history of their country. Amazing the difference that can make. And I'll tell you one example briefly. I had an Air Force officer in one of my classes that I was teaching about the Islamic world. And this guy was a total knuckle dragger. He once stormed out of the class and slammed the door and said, You're an apologist. This is the stuff I have to put up with, rarely. Where did the gray hair come from? Anyway. So I got an email from him three pages long a few years later. He was in charge of the uh, recovery efforts after the Pakistani earthquake. And when he first got there, nobody at the airport helped him. There was no trust. And then he took off all of the stuff and then got their fellows who worked with him to take up all their gear, put their weapons down. And he walked into the head guy's house and he started talking about Islamic history. About the history of the village, about the history of Pakistan. And if he, was, he knew some phrases from the Quran, the next day there were a bunch of people on the field helping him. And he got a letter from the minister in Pakistan saying, you're the only one who got it right. That was one of my major victories as a professor. 6,000 students. Okay, the ambassadors and embassies are part of defense cooperation to FMS and so forth. Very, very important. Who's the most important American overseas? Who has the most power? It's not the four-star general. It's the ambassador. Even though sometimes this boils down to who has the strongest personality. But by regulation, it's the ambassador. State Department also controls a lot of exports of systems, as does the Department of Commerce and the Department of Defense. You have to unwrap this thing. It's a very complicated network of things. Abbas, I'm sure you've been in some of these discussions where the State Department person is saying no, the Commerce Department is saying absolutely yes, and the Defense Department person is saying I have to talk with the general. It is a complex system. Diplomats involved, business people are involved, commerce people are involved, and there are different cultures in the United States across these organizations. And again, another plug for India and McWhorter, where he teaches. We have ambassadors in, we have commerce people in, we have people from all over the government to work on these things and understand each other. And I've seen this work with my students as they go on in their careers. I call up people who are in my seminar in another organization. We need to get this done. Think. Let's talk about it. Very helpful. We need more British there, by the way. All right. Also, the diplomatic side is uh, international organizations. GCC is part of it. We have the head guy right here. NATO, even Interpol. Defense involves more than people in uniforms with bars and stars. It only took me about 20 years to really think what's going on in this. And it really struck me just a few days ago as I was given a briefing on FMS how important and how complicated this really is. 
Casablanca. And I tried it once with my modest Egyptian Arabic. The person looked at me and said, Is he Russian? Also, economics is a lot to do with this. Think of all the poverty in the nation. Think of all the instability from the inequality. Inequality is a fuel for insecurity. The United States could once again be part of this. Through the U.S., the idea of one of my former students from the ideas in the room now. Through the MCC and through many other things. It's not just training people how to kill people. It's training people how to build jobs and build industries and build families and build hope. You want to find a defensive arm of the United States and the Arab world? You help them take care of their people. Now, is that heresy? Maybe in this city these days it is. You need stable economies. You need growing economies. Equal economies, and you need human development. Education, education, education. Some of the most dangerous people on this planet are the ill educated ones with weapons in their hands or with power in their hands. And I'm not going to name any names right down the street anyway. And then there's parliament to parliament defense cooperation. And president to president, or president to king, or president to prime minister, or people to people. That's part of it, too. The best defense is not weapons. The best defense is not necessarily the military, but they're needed. This is pretty good optics having these guys sit here. So, I have two minutes and I can speak for another ten hours. Another part of this is understanding. I don't know how many times I've been in this part of the world listening to someone in a leadership position for my country talk loudly and down at the people of the region. You want cooperation. You speak with them as They will shut down and don't be surprised if they do. I've seen it so many times. And also stating something like the following. I know a lot of Americans like to do this. We're the greatest country on earth. Stating that in front of people you're trying to make a cooperative agreement with. However true that might be in your mind, will do nothing but end that agreement. And really, how you deal with a person in this part of the world depends on where you are, even what city you're in, even what village you're in. What country is hugely different. How to deal with an Egyptian general is completely different from dealing with a Jordanian general. As some of my colleagues in India learned just the other day, one of the Americans wasn't aware of a lot of the Arab world. They said, well, that would be really different. And I said, you know, you cross the border, you're in a different culture. I just looked at me quizzically, like, what are you talking about? And also understand that we're from the same stream. We're from the 
same tree. We're from the same source. We're not superior. We may be different, but if we don't look at things in sameness rather than difference, our defense will become a joke. Thank you.
Sharon, you, you, you really see the impact of the bad decision that was made by Turkey? Well, my guess, and I don't have insider information on this, is they're negotiating. They're holding off, and they're looking at the alternatives. And we're not the only uh, game on the block anymore. There are the Russians, the Chinese, and many others, the French, the English. And uh, the more that we get troublesome publicly, which can be interpreted as being uh, politically with this part of the world, the more they may back off from such deals. So we have to be careful. Thank you. Uh, there are two questions that are pretty close on between both of them, and maybe we can answer on that. Uh, the first one is currently several regional nations trade with each other in one off monthly exchange. How would you envision establishing a permanent multinational trading agreement? And really, the second one, which I think is very related, what should we make of the It's the same thing. It's all about burden sharing and how is 
this could end up to be a non-starter, because without victories and working together, an Arab NATO will be kind of like the NATO cafeteria in a way, people sitting in different countries at different tables. And good food, though. You have to be effective. And being effective means you have as many people as possible in the game who can agree on standardization of
US support, uh, the tempo of operations would be significantly reduced. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the coalition forces involved in Operation Restoring Hope take every effort they can to minimize and avoid civilian casualties. I have absolutely no doubt about that. In war, things do happen. Uh, I think that the comments that Dr. Paul's made uh, about Yemen being a tragedy are true, uh, and the United Nations, specifically Iran, should withdraw their active support for the two rebels and allow us to rebuild that country.
Perceptions are often reality for most people. Okay, I, since we also covered the issue of counterterrorism, there's a question: How has the Islamic State changed its tactics in Iraq and Syria since losing much of its territory? Uh, 
think the large tech companies have a responsibility to try to eradicate that extremist and foul spread of, of ideas. Uh, I think, uh, again, the work that's been done in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and in Abu Dhabi with support of the U.S. government is helping to eradicate some of those uh, pernicious uh, methods of communication. My big fear is that, that those radicalized fighters will find their way back to their original countries and the, uh, the vicious and barbaric activity that we've seen in Iraq and Syria will be transported into other areas of North Africa, the Levant, and the Greb, and potentially even into Europe and Asia. That person I mentioned was from Indonesia. They returned to Indonesia. You're terrified. Since I'm getting close to it, I'm not trying to avoid more controversial questions. So here it is. The two of them together. One is how by the cancellation of all sales to Saudi Arabia as discussed in the aftermath of the Mashoki incident affect U.S. Arab defense cooperation. And related to that, all a significant number of U.S. jobs actually depend on all sales to Saudi Arabia. And is it at all dangerous to take too much consideration for special interest in deciding national policy? Consideration of special interests for national policy? Do we do anything else? Really now, the lobbyists run the show. And uh, the lobbyists and the certain newspaper writers have more power than you can imagine. And they're muddying the waters. The Soviet-U.S. relations really started February 14, 1945, maybe before, according to an earlier speaker, but really started up in Roosevelt and the King met on a ship. And they're strong. And in this situation, Mr. Khashoggi is another one of those nightmares. And it was horrible. And those who were involved with this Assured, will find their deserved faith. But that deserved faith does not mean the end of U.S. Saudi relations. It's going to be a bumpy road, a very bumpy road. The perception of Saudi Arabia was hard to build up here after a certain event a few years ago. It was getting to the point where things were looking good, and then. Education, 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 diplomacy, get out there, folks, and start explaining to people there's more to this than hate and bigotry and bias. Uh, I think, uh, from a defense perspective, anything, if there are going to need to be a, a full of organized states or Western countries, can't do much unilaterally. You have to have multinational or uh, cooperation with, with Gulf countries or regional countries, especially, especially Saudi Arabia. 
administrations different in their different approaches in the Middle East. How are they the same? Thank you. I think uh, the, the same is uh, the furniture of both uh, President uh, Obama and President Trump talk about furniture security, furniture uh, between the United States and the region, and uh, uh, different between both administrations. seen anything like it. Never. 